Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to episode 340 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. I think that many of us accept that CCTV and DNA is here to stay. And both have undoubtedly made a huge difference to solving crime. Of course, there are many arguments about how much the authorities should use either about our personal freedoms, but that's for another podcast. In today's episode, we look at how CCTV was able to solve the most gruesome of crime. No adverts this week, so let's set some context for today's story with our guest the month and year game. But before we get to that, a huge shout out to Gemma and Rav. So pleased to hear that you're enjoying the non-award winning 37th most popular UK true crime podcast. Okay, so in the UK charts, the top spot was filled with Nothing On You from Bob featuring Bruno Mars. Bob. In the US, Eminem was at number one with Not Afraid. And in Australia, OMG from Usher was at the top. In the news this month, the 51,700-seater Viva Stadium was officially opened on the site of the famous old Lansdowne Road in Dublin by Irish Prime Minister Brian Cowan. In the Champions League final in Madrid, actually, I don't want to talk about football. At the 55th Eurovision Song Contest, Lena for Germany won singing Satellite in Oslo. And Paul Gray, the bassist for Slipknot, died for drugs overdose at just 38. And Gary Coleman, people of my generation, will remember him well for his role as Arnold Clark in the iconic Different Strokes. Do you remember that? He died at just 42. So did you get the month and year? It was May 2010. Today's story starts in Bradford, Yorkshire, a city, unfortunately, in my mind, forever associated with Peter Sutcliffe and the terror he spread during his reign of murder. And that presence can still be felt around the city. In the 1990s, the street workers in Bradford, the street workers were fewer And they were moved from the residential streets around Manningham, including Lum Lane, an area that Sutcliffe knew very well, to the semi-industrial main road around Sunbridge Road. And this is where Suzanne Blamiris usually worked. 36-year-old Suzanne was bright, articulate and feisty. After school, she began to train as a nurse. But as we've heard so often on this podcast, once she got in with the wrong crowd and found heavy drugs, including heroin, her life began to spiral. From 2001, she lived with a man of a similar habit and he encouraged her to make money on the streets of Bradford selling sex. In 2001, she was fined by magistrates after she inadvertently propositioned a plainclothes police officer. Life selling sex on the streets, as we hear so much in this podcast, has always been a dangerous place to scrape out a living or an existence. And in 2009... Suzanne was attacked by two men who repeatedly kicked her in the head and body, resulting in her suffering from numerous injuries. They faced a court to be held accountable for their actions. 
although many others had attacked Suzanne and not gone to court. But Suzanne knew the dangers of her job. On Friday the 21st of May 2010, Suzanne went missing from her housing association home in the Allerton district of Bradford after an altercation with a man. Her family were immediately concerned for her welfare, but for the police, Suzanne, or Amber as she was known on the streets, was a sex worker with a big drugs habit and in a life that was often chaotic, they had very little to go on. And by Monday the 24th of May, Suzanne still hadn't been found. Nearby lived 40-year-old Stephen Griffiths. He was seen as a bit eccentric by neighbours in Bradford. Studying for a PhD, he lived alone in a flat in a converted stone mill in Bradford's Manningham district. He wore sunglasses 365 days a year, whatever the weather, and with his long leather coat and his slick back hair, he was often seen out walking his pet lizards on a lead. But he was friendly to his neighbours and he was just seen as a bit of a character. You know how it is sometimes. But that impression of him as someone you looked on with just mild amusement all changed on one May day in 2010. Every Monday, their caretaker at Homefield Court, where Griffiths lived, checked CCTV footage from the weekend, which was all pretty standard stuff. But on May the 24th, as he watched the recordings at 8.30am, he suddenly sat up bolt upright when he saw one piece of footage that was anything but standard. He saw a woman, clearly terrified, running from Griffiths' flat before he caught her and knocked her unconscious. Griffiths then disappeared back into his flat before returning with a crossbow. He carefully took aim and shot the woman with a bolt through her head before dragging the body down a corridor. The caretaker realised he had just witnessed the murder. Griffiths clearly saw that the CTV camera had captured these events and his response was to flip a middle finger to the camera. The caretaker also recognised the woman being attacked, missing sex worker, Suzanne Blamiris. So did the caretaker do next what any one of us would have done? Well, he called the news desk at the Sun newspaper to ensure he got paid for the story. Outrageous, I would suggest, but what do you think? Only after that did he call the police. When the police arrived at Griffiths' flat shortly afterwards, he was waiting for them. When he was arrested, Griffiths told officers, I'm Osama bin Laden. Once at the police station, he became boastful, saying, I've killed a lot more than Suzanne Blumeris. I've killed loads. Peter Sutcliffe came a cropper in Sheffield. So did I. But at least I got out of the city. He told officers that Suzanne was gone. He said he'd eaten some of her, adding, that's part of the magic. Griffiths also told the interviewing officers he was only going to talk about five Bradford cases. Detectives were now linking Suzanne's disappearance with other missing women, in particular two missing local sex workers, 43-year-old Susan Rushworth and 31-year-old Shelley Armitage. Susan had vanished the previous June. Then just a month before Griffiths was arrested, Shirley Armitage had also disappeared. And now it looked as though Suzanne had been killed and she lived just three streets away from Shelley. 
Detectives discovered Griffiths had enticed Suzanne to his apartment by pretending to be a photographer. And he claimed that he was interested in paying her to lie on the bed and raise her backside in the air so that portraits for a new art gallery exhibition could be taken by him. But unfortunately, the only photographs he took of Suzanne were after she'd been murdered at another of his trophies. The CCTV footage of Suzanne and Griffiths going to his flat in the lift before the attack, I think are terrible to look at. Suzanne looks relaxed, and her instincts were usually excellent. They had to be to work on the streets of Bradford. And it was not long after that Suzanne burst out of that flat with Griffiths racing after her. And shortly afterwards, Suzanne was dead. Immediately after Griffiths was in custody, police officers searched for Suzanne's remains in locations around Bradford. As they'd seen on CCTV, he'd left his flat with what looked like a full rucksack. Did this contain Suzanne? She certainly wasn't in his flat. But then the day after the arrest, the focus of the search moved to nearby Shipley, following a call from a local business worker who'd spotted what they thought were body parts in the river. It proved to be correct, and detectives had found the dismembered remains of Suzanne. Now Griffiths had to take a train to get to Shipley in the River Eyre. He'd sat on a train with a rucksack containing a body. Nikki Blamirez, Suzanne's mum, said that her bright and articulate daughter had taken the wrong path after attending college and training to be a nurse. She did not have the life she was meant to have, she said. What has happened to her will haunt me to the day I die. Unfortunately, she took the wrong path at the age of 16 when she became a victim of heroin. Her death will haunt us for the rest of our lives. Detectives began to look more into the life of Stephen Griffiths and what they found was terrifying. Just who was Stephen Griffiths? Well, that depended on who you spoke to as he showed so many different sides to his character. A quiet and helpful man, some would say. Others saw the violence and the manipulative side of Griffiths. Born in 1969 in Dewsbury, Yorkshire, he was a quiet, unremarkable child known for his daydreaming. There was nothing in his early childhood to suggest the sort of man he was to become, except maybe his obsession with shooting birds. Academically strong, Griffiths was awarded a spot at a decent grammar school. When he was there, he was again pretty unremarkable, and seen as just a quiet boy who got on with his work. A former classmate said of him, he was very quiet and pretty insignificant, really. He was interested in martial arts and brought some of the weapons he owned into school. He brought with him on one or two occasions a rather vicious-looking dagger and some throwing stars. His other main interest during these years seemed to be those role-playing fantasy books involving mythical creatures such as dragons, that you'll remember if you're a certain age, before all moved online. His schoolmate said, If you look at the boy Griffiths, he was a small, thin, below-average-sized pupil. Yet in his books and in his games, he was an all-powerful, big macho type that was killing and slaying and winning. Another serial killer, John George Haig, was awarded a scholarship to the same school as Griffiths in the early 20th century. He was later hanged at Wandsworth Prison, aged 40. Would this link have affected Griffiths? 
Leading criminologist Professor David Wilson believed so. At school, Haig was well known, and so Griffiths would have heard a lot about him. Despite his decent academic ability, by 16, Griffiths was done with school. During his school years, there was a significant moment in his life when at 13, his parents' marriage broke down. From this point, Griffiths spent his childhood on a council estate in Wakefield, where he lived with his mum and his brother and his sister. But Griffiths didn't like the way that his mum went out clubbing after the separation. He didn't like her enjoying herself and he was embarrassed by her behaviour. He certainly felt his mum was responsible for the end of the marriage and he bore a strong resentment to her because of this. There are stories that on more than one occasion he watched as his mum indulged in sexual activity with men in the garden, but just how much truth there is to this is unclear. As Griffiths moved into his teenage years, his cruelty to animals escalated as he began not just shooting birds but pulling off their wings and mutilating them. One neighbour told how he seemed to be very different from other children, saying, He didn't play out and you only saw him at night. We used to see him with an air gun shooting birds. Then we used to see him dissecting birds. It looked as if he was enjoying what he was doing. He wasn't dissecting them bit by bit, he was ripping them apart. And it got worse as it said that on one occasion, he cut the tail and ears off a puppy. It wasn't long before this violent behaviour with animals was replicated with adults and this got him into trouble with the police. The first incident was when he was caught shoplifting by a security guard when he was 17. Rather than just put up his hands and take his punishment, Instead, he produced a knife and cut the man's throat. It could have proved fatal, but luckily the security guard survived after having a number of stitches. And for this, Griffiths was sent to a youth offenders unit for three years. When inside and asked about his behaviour, he simply said it was his desire to become a serial killer. In 1992, he was again sent to prison for holding a knife to the throat of a young woman as he had believed she was laughing at him. At the end of this sentence, he was assessed at Rampton High Security Hospital, but they concluded that he didn't pose a risk to the community, so Griffiths was soon back a free man. He attended Bradford College and from here progressed to Leeds University, where in 2003 he was awarded a degree in psychology. He wanted to stay in academia, so a year later, went on to study for a PhD at the University of Bradford, where he studied patterns of crime in Bradford during the 19th century, with his dissertation titled Homicide in Bradford, 1847-1899. to In the six years he spent studying at his PhD before his arrest, Griffiths spent his time at the library reading about murder, and he took this interest into the real world, where using the name Then Pariah, he described himself as someone who brought hate into heaven, and he regularly reviewed DVDs and books about crime, especially murder. He appeared in a photograph naked from the chest upwards and quoted a line from the Bible. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides. Even if, like me, you're not so familiar with it from the Bible, you may well recognise that quote as it was used in a particularly gory execution scene in the film Pulp Fiction. Back in these days, MySpace was still a thing, and Griffiths commented on that site, Humanity is not merely a biological condition, 
it's also a state of mind. On that basis, I'm a pseudo-human being at best, a demon at worst. And a website he set up called The Skeleton of the Jaguar was full of pictures of crossbows. The site also contained photographs of 50 serial killers. Griffiths isn't believed to have started buying sex until around 10 years before he murdered. He had one relationship in 1998 which went very badly wrong when the woman finally went to his home. She told how what she saw inside was awful, telling the BBC it was horrific, very macabre, very scary. You walked in and on the left-hand side there was just a huge bookcase and it was just full of horror books on like the Moore's murders and Jack the Ripper, the Yorkshire Ripper, she said. But not just five or six books, literally hundreds of books and he always had lots of videos, really horrific video nasties. It was just like somebody else's flat. It was like it didn't belong to him at all. It was just horrific. I just got a feeling where I just didn't feel safe. So I made an excuse. I said, Stephen, can you take me home? I just don't feel well. I feel sick. And after that, she phoned him to end the relationship. She also spoke about some other disturbing behaviours he'd shown, saying, he'd a thing about horror films, but he'd think they were funny. They're really horrible slasher horror films. And when someone got murdered, he'd just like laugh his head off and he'd go, oh great, look at that. He was absolutely terrified of insects crawling in his ears in his sleep, so he had to plug his ears with cotton wool. One night I didn't have any and he just stayed up all night. He refused to go to bed, wouldn't lie down, which looking back is really quite bizarre. After this girlfriend broke off all contact with him, he'd an abusive relationship with another woman who finally managed to escape from him in 2001. But he wasn't happy and he stalked her for years, spraying slag on her wall when she was away on holiday and leaving threatening messages on her voicemail. In one of those concerning voicemails, he laughed like a maniac and said, I'm not going to go away, so I guess you'd better. A sex worker who saw Griffiths regularly for four years before his arrest also spoke to the BBC about him and how she felt lucky to be alive. She said his flat was immaculately tidy and she would charge £40 once or twice a week to go there for sex but she'd noticed a change in him a year or so before the murder when he changed his appearance and started shouting at sex workers. She thought this was because maybe one person had stolen from him. She told how before this change he was a gentle giant, but everything in his flat was covered in plastic. He said it was because it was new furniture and he didn't want to get it damaged. Even his carpet had plastic on it. Most places in his flat were covered. He was obsessive. You had to take your shoes off. If you made a drink, you had to have it on a mat. When there, they would smoke crack cocaine and marijuana and inject amphetamines. He also drank whiskey, rum, brandy and lager heavily. When he got drunk or had a bit of a smoke, he got a bit teary-eyed or emotional, like something happened in the past, she said. He would try to say something, but just started crying and shut up. He'd get annoyed and kicked her out of his flat. She also spoke about how he behaved to her physically. He'd pinned her to the bed before and held her down. 
but she said he started to get even more violent about two months before his arrest. It was then that he started to show her even more violent internet pornography, she said. I was actually shocked. I actually threw up. He was getting a kick out of it. I was trying to get out of his flat. It got a bit forceful. He did his hands around my neck. Luckily, I managed to get away. I got dressed and left. I said I wasn't interested anymore. And when I next saw him, he asked why I hadn't been around. I said, I told you the last time I saw you. He started calling me names and shouting after me down the road. I just kept on walking. He said he was doing a criminology course. He said it's amazing what people can get away with. He said he could do anything to me when I was in his flat. It did unnerve me because he could do absolutely anything. We've heard how Griffiths was waiting calmly for the police when they came to arrest him. It appears he knew his time was up, but that did not stop him trying to entice another sex worker to his flat just an hour after he'd killed Suzanne. 28-year-old Rosalind Edmondson was on her way to collect methadone from an all-night chemist just down the road from where he lived. He complimented her and invited her back to his home. CCTV shows her walking back to him, to his flat, and the two standing outside. But something just didn't feel right to Rosalind, and this instinct saved her life, as she decided not to go to his flat with him and walked home. Griffiths didn't attempt to change her mind, and returned home shortly afterwards. But now detectives were desperately searching for other victims of Griffiths. Just how many were there? Of particular concern were two missing local sex workers. One was Suzanne Rushworth, a 43-year-old mum of three and a grandma, whose addiction to heroin had led her to sell sex on the streets of Bradford. Susan had last been seen walking between Manningham Lane and Lister Park in Bradford on the 22nd of June 2009 and had not been seen since. This area was very close to where Griffiths lived and she went missing after she'd managed to go six weeks without heroin and was just starting to get her life back again. She'd seen her grandchild again. Had she fallen victim to Stephen Griffiths? The other missing woman was 31-year-old Shelley Armitage, a mum of two, who went missing after leaving her flat three hours earlier with a friend and heading to the Bradford Red Light District of Sunbridge Road, where she'd worked since she developed a drugs habit at just 15 years old. She lived just three streets away from Suzanne, who was a friend of hers. Her boyfriend reported her missing. Next week, in the concluding part of our story, we'll hear more about the victims of Griffiths, his trial, and the legacy of the violence he brought to Bradford. But I just want to finish this episode by talking again about Suzanne Blumirius, who lost her life in the most terrifying circumstances to Griffiths. Her last moments are beyond, I think, our comprehension. And Griffiths took away a much-loved friend and member of the family, stealing her future for his own violent pleasure in what was just a pointless murder. Who knows the direction her life could have turned in the future if she'd just been able to break free from that terrible shackle that is heroin. But Griffiths, he took that opportunity away from her. Our thoughts are with the family and friends of Suzanne.
Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story and any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to Facebook and join over 90,000 of us who talk UK True Crime 24-7. And to support the show, please do head to patreon.com for bonus episodes and other exclusive content. A huge thank you to the latest members of this community. That's Melanie Gudgel, Rose Archer and Paul Davison. Thank you so much for your support. It's much appreciated. And finally, Bloodhound Gin. I've been asked why we chose the name Bloodhound Gin and we chose it because Bloodhound Dogs have an incredible reputation for tracking down missing people and criminals. Were you aware that law enforcement are still using them in the field today? despite all the tech out there. My video this week gives you a bit of background to this incredible breed and how they became noticed and revered for their amazing detective skills. You can find the video, as always, on my Instagram stories and reels at UK True Crime and on my other social channels. Check it out tomorrow. Okay, so that's all for me for another week. So until we speak again next week, please do take it easy. Please, please don't mention football and the mighty League United to me. And despite all the others, it's always the others. Stay classy. Cheerio for now. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.